This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. One year ago this week, Ian Kerr, a friend, colleague, teacher, and prescient scholar in the world of law, technology, and ethics, passed away. Ian's law sparked an outpouring of stories of a truly exceptional person whose friendship, mentorship, and encouragement left a remarkable legacy, with so many citing his impact as a defining moment in their lives and careers. The 12 months since his passing have been even more difficult than anyone could have imagined, even as we were grappling with his missing voice and presence in the halls of the University of Ottawa, Those halls went silent in March in response to the global COVID-19 pandemic. The pandemic has ushered in so many new challenges, and I know that he would have had so much to offer and say about our current times. The pandemic also placed some of the initiatives to enshrine Ian's legacy on hold. The We Robot Conference, which was to have been hosted at the University of Ottawa in the spring, was postponed and with it several events dedicated to Ian. While the in-person We Robot conference will not happen this year, an exciting virtual event with many fantastic panels will run this fall. The Ian Kerr Memorial Fund, a fund to support the creation of a Kerr Fellows program for students entering the Master of Laws program at the University of Ottawa, garnered significant support in the months after Ian's passing. Fundraising plans were largely placed on hold in March, but the campaign is now back up and running complete with a major dollar-for-dollar matching opportunity that will help support graduate students in the years ahead. One event that went ahead as scheduled was the IAPP's Ian Kerr Memorial Lecture. The International Association of Privacy Professionals is the world's leading privacy association, and given the impact Ian had on the privacy world, it decided to launch an annual lecture in his honor at the IAPP Canada Privacy Symposium. While this year's symposium was cancelled, the Kerr Memorial Lecture went ahead with an online streamed lecture. I was honoured to deliver that inaugural lecture, titled Privacy and Zambonis in the Age of COVID-19. This week's podcast features that lecture, which I think is most notable for exploring how Ian's scholarship remains fresh and relevant today, with so much to teach about the challenges of privacy in our current world. It really was the IAPP and the privacy community that was amongst the first to speak out and to to celebrate Ian's career, and that's a, it has been a, a tough time for all. And and I think that that notion of of speaking out so quickly was so important. I think it's important to note and just appreciate that not only were you there to celebrate um, Ian's career, but you've continued the the IAPP and the community itself more broadly. And so, for example, at the University of Ottawa, we launched the Ian Kerr Memorial Fund, which will go to help support future law students, masters of law students, focused on issues around privacy, AI, uh, ethics, and technology. And the IAPP and many from in the privacy community have been amongst the very first to help support that program that will, we hope, lead to a future generation of Kerr Fellows that will carry on Ian's legacy in truly important ways. And then, of course, there is this memorial lecture as well. It is, for me, an exceptional honor to be able to speak uh, about my my dear friend, uh, Ian Kerr. He is someone who, I, I must admit, I there is rarely a day that goes by that I don't think about Ian, that uh, when 
I read something, when I see a post, when I get an email from someone, uh, when I'm encountering a, a difficult issue, it is still today my very first instinct is a desire to send it along to Ian to see what he thinks or what he would have thought. And oftentimes I've had to catch myself and stop doing that. He is missed by uh, myself. I'm missed by many of my colleagues and my friends really on a, on a daily basis. And the fact that we're starting something that will continue that legacy and allow people to continue to, to, to think about what he taught us, I think is just so valuable. On a very personal level, I have to say that in preparing for this lecture, it provided a, a, a truly terrific opportunity. We're all, of course, at home right now, grappling with a global pandemic, which creates its own set of challenges, both professional and personal. And to be able to take a little bit of time to go back and reflect on what Ian would have thought about our current time was for me exceptionally valuable and something that I wanna share a little bit before I get into some of my other remarks. I've often thought about Ian's missing voice over the last couple of months. It seems to me that he would have had much to say about the kinds of issues we're grappling with in a global public health emergency. And indeed, if you go back and take a look at his scholarship over the decades, he did tell us what to think, or he did provide us with true wisdom and guidance in that regard. I think, for example, of of a piece that he wrote back in 2004, more than 15 years ago, with the awesome title of Bots, Babes, and the Californication of Commerce. And in that piece, he talked specifically about uh, software programmers applying principles of cognitive science to develop electronic entities that garner consumer trust, but lamented that unfortunately there were e-businesses that were exploiting that to garner trust where no such trust was warranted. Ian, I anticipated even then at an early stage before we were talking about the concerns with some of the largest internet-based companies and the growing divide on trust, that if we continued down this particular road, this would be one of the real issues we would face. And indeed, as we think today about trying to ensure that we can leverage technology in important ways to help grapple with this public health crisis, it is trust that again becomes an enormous concern. A year later, he wrote about the implications of digital rights management, DRM, focusing specifically in that instance on privacy and freedom of expression related issues. And once again, he focused in that instance specifically around questions with respect to consent, asking how can it be said in a meaningful way that she's provided consent, let alone informed consent, when she has no idea of the kinds of information that are or could have been collected, when the information would be collected, why, for how long the surveillance would take place, or for how long the information that was collected would be used or stored. Now that was of course written in the context of digital rights management, but when we think about contact tracing applications, when we think about the range of other technological tools that we are currently grappling with and seeking to find ways to help alleviate some of our real challenges that we face. It's quite clear that he could have been speaking in this environment as well with some of the same consent-based challenges. He spoke as well uh, about testing in an, an article a couple of years later, in this case on brain privacy, with an exceptionally important piece at that point in time. And he wrote about how do we ensure that brain scans undertaken for one person are not collected, used, or disclosed 
for some other purpose. And he acknowledged that these issues weren't new ones, but said, predicted and said that they would have new currency in a world where employers, insurance companies, bankers, teachers, lovers, lawyers, law enforcement agencies, and judges all clamor to learn more about the person's, what, what a person's brain states. Think about if we took out the word brain scans in this context and talk about viral loads instead, or people's personal temperatures, the very issues that we are now seeking in many instances to collect for the reasons that are, will be obvious to all as we grapple with the coronavirus, and yet those same sorts of issues that Ian identified back then resonate, I think, quite clearly more than a decade later. In 2012, together with Jennifer Berger, he wrote about privacy, identity, and anonymity. This, as many of you will know, was part of a major project, one of the very first multidisciplinary major projects undertaken that engaged in these issues and left as a legacy an incredible array of scholarship and new scholars who got their start through this particular initiative. At that time, he wrote about the worry that many had about regulatory responses to real and perceived threats that were already profoundly challenging our fundamental commitments to privacy, to autonomy, equality, security of the person, free speech, free movement, and free association. Adding about the emphasis in recent years at that time towards public safety and national security, a different sort of public safety than, that, than we are grappling with now, and worried about how we would transform the structures of communication systems from architectures of freedom to architectures of control. Those words remain as relevant today as they did then, because those are many of the same kinds of values and issues that we face and grapple with today as we explore how to strike the balance of one that addresses our public health challenges, but preserves some of those same kinds of fundamental commitments. And lastly, in terms of some of the pieces that I was looking at, there's a more, there was a more recent piece that he called De The Devil is in the Defaults, pointing to the importance of looking at default choices from a privacy perspective. And in that piece, he wrote that we are starting to delegate significant decision-making powers to smart technologies, allowing machine interventions to affect our own ability to decide things. This further relinquishment of control, especially as we continue to push forward in the field of machine learning, in which we train smart technologies to behave on their own without being explicitly programmed, risks becoming a force multiplier of shifting defaults. That we recognize to anyone who is watching this that the role of smart technologies today, which we now want to deploy in a range of new kinds of ways, whether that is to try to identify uh, the spread of the virus and uh, the range of other sorts of issues that we are trying to, to get ahead of, raises the same kinds of questions, the same kinds of issues that Ian was thinking about. And so as I think about what would Ian say today, in many ways, he already taught us much around some of these issues. The kinds of issues and his forward-looking thinking resonates not only for the issues he was looking at during those different times, but very much so today. I think it's worth noting, of course, that as Trevor rightly noted, his focus was not just on issues associated with the scholarship, but he was also an advocate and a teacher. And some of his most noteworthy work comes in that context of being an exceptional teacher and someone who was unafraid to speak truth to power 
and often engage in real advocacy to undersure, ensure that our policymakers, decision makers, would be well aware of the implications of some of the choices that they make. Some of you may know that I pull together a weekly podcast that explores some of the kinds of issues that I focus on around privacy, technology, and digital related issues. And um, about a month or so after Ian passed, I put together a podcast celebrating some of Ian's remarks in different speeches and appearances before House of Commons committees and Senate committees. One of those appearances is, is one that I wanted to revisit for a moment now. It was an appearance before the Standing Committee on Access to Information, Privacy and Ethics, the committee in Canada that spends the most amount of time focusing on privacy-related issues. And back in 2017, it was conducting one of what has been a series of hearings and, and uh, studies focused on potential privacy reform in Canada. Now, as part of that appearance, Ian laid out some of the concerns and the need for reform, but he closed in, in a somewhat unusual way. In the podcast, I emphasized one of the two issues that he focused on. He said, it's unusual for me, in a sense, to, uh, at the end of a talk, criticize the person who's invited me to speak, but I feel compelled in this instance to speak out. He spoke first of the uh, absence of any women on the committee itself. There was not just no gender balance, there was no gender other than males on that committee. And noting the incredibly important role that women have played in privacy in Canada, from Liz Denham, of course, to Anne Kabukian and Jennifer Stoddard and many, many others, Jill Clayton, so many people come to mind. It was clear that Ian was deeply troubled, not just that those though they were not being recognized, but that we would explore one of these issues and not ensure that we had better gender representation. And so he took the time to say, listen, you may not appreciate hearing this, but I want to ensure that you do hear it. That's not the only thing that he commented. He also focused on the frustration that many in the privacy community have felt about continual efforts to try to engage in reform Reform efforts that have often either fallen on deaf ears or not been given the kind of urgency that I think many of us believe it deserves. He noted as part of the appearance that it's fair to say that, there, that, that my sense of deja vu is not unwarranted, with the exception of a few new points like my submission in favor of a duty to explain, much of, much of what I have said, indeed much of what everyone who has appeared before you has said, has all been said before. And although many honorable members of this committee may be new to these issues, those who have done their homework will surely know that we've already done this dance in hearings around Bill S-4, C-13, the Privacy Act, the Privacy and Social Media hearings, and of course, going all the way back to the pivotal review that took place in 2006. Yet, he noted, we see very little in the way of substantive legislative change. And he closed by saying, although ongoing study is important, I say with respect that you are not Zamboni drivers. The time has come to stop circling around the same ice. The time has come to make some important legislative changes. Now, I think that's a terrific analogy, one that will, I think, really resonate, of course, with Canadians, including Trevor um, and others, because, of course, Zambonis and ice hockey rinks play a big, big part of many of our lives, especially growing up with our kids. Uh, and yet that notion of continually circling the same issues without actually moving forward, without uh, taking those lessons and acting on them, I think for many has long been a source of frustration. And it was Ian who found just a, an exceptional way of making that point clear. 
Now, if we think about what has taken place since that committee appearance, I would say with respect that even in the last few years, there has still in Canada largely been a failure to act. At a federal government level, there has been some initiatives with respect to trying to address privacy-related issues. And so the current minister responsible for these issues, Navdeep Baines, that I said, introduced just before our federal election a year ago, Canada's digital charter, which sought to frame this as a matter of trying to imbue greater trust in a digital world and spelled out the prospect of further reforms to PIPIDA. In fact, earlier this year, I and, and a number of other people gathered with the minister to talk about what some of those priority issues ought to be and emphasize the need for action and to move on reform. Now, of course, the pandemic has put a stop or at least a temporary halt to some of those reforms as we grapple with many other issues. But yet there still wasn't that urgency post in 2017 or even in recent years to see this not just as, as an issue in, in need of, of action, but of one that there was an urgency to act because the implications of failing to act could be significant. Now, it wasn't just the government that struggled to move forward with this. Our privacy commissioners have tried to address some of these issues, but I think in fairness are often stuck with legislation that increasingly is, I think, viewed as not fit for purpose to be able to grapple with the kinds of challenges that we face today. So our federal privacy commissioner, for, or for example, has tried to, in a sense, reinterpret some of his existing legislation. He tried that, for example, within the context of transborder data flows, uh, which was largely, I think, an unsuccessful attempt. It was one that resulted in a lot of pushback from many in the privacy community, arguing that it would fuel uncertainty and went beyond many of the prior interpretations and expectations that had built and built into the law, and that what we needed are real reforms to the law itself, not reinterpretations. Even where there is the ability to move forward, there is still a struggle. We think, for example, of the challenges of dealing with Facebook, either in a Cambridge Analytica case, where, of course, Liz Denham played such a lead role, um, but also in, in a range of other internet-related and data governance-type issues. Privacy Commissioner at a federal level has moved forward, but uh, those findings are now being challenged in federal court. In fact, just this week in Canada, there was a settlement between Facebook and the Competition Bureau with penalties that went far beyond what our current privacy rules uh, would allow, even though many would argue that the penalty in this case as part of the settlement, $9 million, was woefully inadequate. All of this speaks to legislation that, as I mentioned, is not fit for purpose anymore, and that requires significant reforms to ensure that it's commensurate with what we find in many other jurisdictions, of course, most notably the GDPR in Europe. Now, before COVID, before grappling with this global pandemic, I think you could make the argument that these were critically important issues, but the, but the need to act was one of a number of different digital policies and that for many, myself included, the opportunity to continue to engage provided, I think, a lot of fun from an academic perspective, a lot of fun for the community as a whole to grapple with real world questions about what the law looks like, how effective it is, and what it could look like if we were to render it more effective. I would say to you, though, that over the last couple of months, we have begun to really see the real consequences of having legislation 
that is not up to the standard that I think is needed to engender the level of public trust in our institutions and companies to ensure that Canadians uh, enjoy the sort of privacy that I think many would expect that they should have. And yet today, those privacy laws are still not at that, are not at that point, and they are not even as good as many of you will know, arguably, uh, as what we find in other jurisdictions. I wanted to highlight three examples, all of which have just unfolded to a certain extent over the last two months, ever since we have all been in our homes. I thought I'd start with uh, Kuzma, the Canada-US-Mexico agreement, which will take some, would take some by surprise who don't pay close attention to these issues to know that as part of this agreement, privacy and data protection rules form an important part. Now, it was just over a month ago, a month and a half ago, that Canada notified the US and Mexico that it has now ratified the revised NAFTA, the new uh, Kuzma. All of this taking place very, very quickly. And there is a, the possibility that this will come into force within the next couple of months. Now, as part of that, there are privacy provisions that will be part of this agreement. Many of you will know that the digital trade chapter includes a pair of articles that speaks specifically to cross-border transfer of information, as well as data localization related issues, the location of computing facilities. Both of those are important privacy and data governance issues that countries around the world have been grappling with. And yet in the Canadian context, we've effectively made truly important substantive policy decisions, not by way of a public consultation or debate or even significant hearings on the issue, but rather by way of a trade agreement, much of which is negotiated behind closed doors without the full opportunity to ensure that we can shape policies that best reflect the kinds of choices Canadians might want to make. Now, as part of an impact assessment that the government produced with respect to Kuzma, with respect to this trade agreement, it referenced Canada's privacy framework and argued that there was really nothing to see here that in fact there was no need for reform as part of this law. So those looking at the trade agreement who might be concerned about the need for substantive legislative change coming out of the trade agreement, there was none to be found. Canadian law was arguably already compliant um, with what was required within that trade agreement. The problem with articulating that point of view, in a sense, nothing to see here, Canadian law is already compliant, is it doesn't really speak to the full implications of these provisions for Canadian privacy and data governance rules. Indeed, this came up at a hearing in February as there was a rushed set of hearings that took place and I had the opportunity to participate in one of them at the industry committee where this specific issue came up. Michelle Rempel-Garner, a conservative uh, MP who is now the opposition critic focusing on these digital issues, asked our government officials specifically about the digital chapter, chapter 19, and questions around restrictions on the transfer of personal information and the data localization rules, and started by asking for where was the analysis? Can you show us the analysis you used about what this would mean for Canadian law and what it would mean for the ability for Canadian law to comply with laws in other jurisdictions, notably the GDPR and others. The response was that there was no analysis that was completed specifically on that. So Rempel Garner continued though and asked specifically whether or not there was anything in this bill that would preserve the rights of Canada to proceed with similar types of legislation. And it was here that the response from 
the government official, I think, laid, laid clear that the problem or the concern was not about the obligation to create new laws, but rather about the restrictions on future laws. With the, with the representative noting that the bill generally does not, and the bill being the treaty, does not indicate where there is policy flexibility. It does the reverse. It indicates where there is policy limitation. In other words, what we have done is create real limits on what we are able to do in an issue that we did not finish the process of completing from a policy perspective, despite the admonitions and the advice to move forward and seek to address those issues, Canada through this agreement has effectively already made some of those choices. And I would argue that that represent, has real consequences and represents, I think, long-term a real loss. Second illustration I wanted to highlight involves Sidewalk Toronto. And it's here I have to pause for just a moment to provide you with a clear caveat and disclaimer to note that I currently serve as the chair of Waterfront Toronto's Digital Strategy Advisory Panel. Uh, we have been involved as an advisory panel for the last couple of years in seeking to try, to try to provide advice to Waterfront Toronto on digital issues. And unsurprisingly, it is the Sidewalk Toronto deal that has captured the lion's share of attention and, and much of our work with the meetings that are held in public and review of literally thousands of pages that Sidewalk had provided to Waterfront Toronto. My comments here just for this moment are my own and they don't reflect either Waterfront Toronto or the panels or any specific member of the panel. They are simply my own reflections of, a, of an issue that captured an enormous amount of public attention, particularly in Toronto, but more than just in Toronto, as many people around the world were looking to this specific uh, example, this specific project as representing an important project around questions res with respect to smart cities. As many of you will know, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Sidewalk announced that they were pulling out of the project, citing some of the economic uncertainties associated with COVID-19. But I think it is fair to say that there is much speculation that while that certainly is a plausible reason, it may not be the only reason. And of course, there were many who were opposed to this particular project. There were some who, many who were supportive as well. Those who were opposed now celebrate and argue that much of that opposition may have played a significant role in that taking place. Those who were in favor of the project have said that uh, this is a missed opportunity and a loss ultimately for Toronto. I would note that my own view with respect to both sides of, of this debate um, is that in many ways it was oversold by both sides, that this project was never, at least in the way that it was being proposed, never quite as innovative as, as its proponents wanted to suggest, nor was it quite as dystopian as its critics wanted to argue either. I think there were some interesting proposals in there, but it was really in many respects, I think, oversold on both sides. What I think is more notable and relevant for our purposes, though, is that fundamentally one of the core things that brought this project in my view down, and I say this without any inside knowledge at all, I read the same newspaper articles uh, that many others might read, had to do with the concerns around public trust. Indeed, Dan Doktoroff, who led Sidewalk, acknowledged really from an early stage that the company needed to earn people's trust on these issues in order for the project to go forward, and I think it is clear, as we now know that the project will not be going forward, that there were many that ultimately were never to re able to reconcile the trust in that project itself. Now, part of that may have stemmed from 
their view specifically of the involvement in Google, which as many of you will know is a parent company. This, But I think it was more than just that. Uh, I think that the absence of frameworks to address these issues of privacy and trust frameworks ultimately forced many of these issues to the negotiations itself, to Waterfront Toronto and Sidewalk to actually deal with. And yet we would have done far better, in my view, to have had the frameworks in place so that we would have known what the privacy and data governance rules would have been from the outset. The absence of that legislation created real consequences, I think, ultimately for this project. And finally, a few words about the consequences of where we find ourselves today around COVID-19. There is, of course, much talk about how technology can play an important role as part of this through contact tracing apps and the like. I think we should note that the privacy implications here are not just about contact tracing apps. Colin Bennett wrote earlier this week about the implications of contact tracing beyond just smartphone apps and the privacy issues that can arise offline as well in some of those kinds of considerations. We see even in countries where, we, where arguably they are doing far better, not arguably, the data makes it clear they are doing far better, that they too still have real challenges when it comes to how you reconcile the public health issues with privacy related issues. And it goes beyond just even the contact tracing and trying to track where individuals may be. As countries reopen, we start seeing people getting personal health information such as temperatures being taken, mandatory mask wearing, of course, even registration requirements to enter into otherwise public spaces, whether in malls or one proposal that was retracted in Washington state around diners requiring to provide contact information when restaurants reopen. All of this, of course, has enormous privacy implications and the questions of how we effectively deal with them are today, I think, front and center. I was privileged to be part of an expert advisory group that CIFAR put together on society, technology, and ethics in a pandemic step. And it was put together at the request of Canada's chief science advisor, Mona Nemmer, to take, take a specific look at some of the intersection between technology, ethics, and trying and the attempts to address, address COVID-19. And we focused primarily on the issues associated with contract tracing apps and proximity-related technologies. Now, part of the goal, of course, was to try to deal with some of the privacy-related concerns. And we have seen many from our community speak out about some of these issues, about the value of ensuring that these are opt-in, voluntary-based models, that the information that is collected is decentralized rather than centralized from a privacy perspective, that there be real oversight as part of the steps that are being taken, that there are time limits to some of the provisions that are adopted in, in order to deal with, with some of these issues. Though it is worth noting that even as we have gradually moved to more and more of a consensus around some of those principles, there are many that argue that in a time of deep crisis, that we may need to even remove ourselves from some of those particular positions as well. These are tough issues, tough issues both from a technology perspective, from a privacy perspective, and from a broader societal perspective. My colleague Jason Millar, who is also very close to, to Ian, has written, I think, insightfully about some of the broader implications and concerns that arise from contact tracing apps, focusing not so much on, a, on the technological perspective, but the societal related questions uh, that come when you begin to implement some of these kinds of technologies. But fundamentally, what we have learned, I think, so far, without even seeing a full rollout of that technology, are that there are two fundamental challenges. The first one that now you will see is a consistent theme is a, is a trust problem. 
that even if there is a belief that these contact tracing apps provide some value on an individual level and perhaps even more value on a societal level, the willingness, the ability for people to trust in these apps, to trust not just in the app itself, but of course, in who may be collecting and using this information uh, represents an enormous challenge. While polls may suggest that the public itself supports the use of contact tracing apps, in countries and jurisdictions that have already implemented some of these technologies, we find that the take-up is still pretty limited. Iceland, for example, is 40% uh, take-up, which is better than most. And yet what they find with a number that low, despite the fact that that's high, relatively speaking, is that it just doesn't help that much. That effectiveness depends on even a broader, higher level of adoption, and that ultimately depends on more trust, something that is exceptionally difficult to achieve. We see it taking place in Canada as well, where Alberta has launched one of its own apps and its take-up is far lower than anticipated, or at least from what they hoped, which has ultimately meant that its effectiveness is called into question. So we face first a fundamental trust problem, an issue that could have, I think, been helped by ensuring that we've got better, had better trust and privacy frameworks in place. The other issue that we face, one highlighted by my colleague, Teresa Scazza, is that we are seeing in Canada rollouts across different provinces that differ from province to province. Now, it's one thing for countries to make different choices when it comes either to the technology that's used or to some of the specific policy and implementation features that they have. But when you do this at a country level, where the kinds of technologies and protections and safeguards differ, whether I happen to live on one side of the river here in Ottawa or on the other side of the river in Gatineau, represents, I think, an enormous problem. We see contact tracing apps, as I mentioned, in Alberta. We've seen the, the Ottawa Public Health Department talk about developing its own public tracing act, so localities moving in this direction. Provinces are also, as noted here, British Columbia, quietly testing apps. We've seen other institutes in the AI field beginning to work on this as well. The inability in all likelihood for these apps to interoperate, I think will raise challenges to its effectiveness, but even more, the absence of common standards, protections and safeguards ultimately undermines trust uh, and ultimately I think really limits the, the value that might be extracted from these apps at a time when people are questioning just how much we need these apps. Um, and while there is clear recognition that as part of that system, it's not an app alone, that contact tracing, testing, and the like is an essential ingredient in all of this. Now, those are some of the challenges that we face. And as I mentioned off the top, I wonder many times about what Ian would have to say about some of these challenges, no doubt. He could speak eloquently and in such an informed way about the kinds of policies that we ought to be thinking about and the broader ethical challenges that many of these kinds of technologies create. I mentioned many of the papers off the top that resonate still today. I thought I would close with one last one. Um, this also on digital rights management, it was a contribution to a book that I wrote on copyright law that I edited on copyright law. And he wrote that the erosion of privacy goes beyond the individual, and as the space for private autonomous action shrinks, there are significant political consequences. He was speaking in that instances, instance about digital rights management, about DRM. But those concerns around the erosion of privacy and the significant political consequences, I think, resonate today stronger than ever. And it is very clear 
that we are grappling with significant political consequences due to what I think many perceive to be an erosion of privacy, which ultimately leads to a real erosion in trust. So as we think and celebrate, we think about Ian, we celebrate much of what he taught. I think he told us much about how to grapple with our current challenges. If we had that chance to ask him today about what, what should we be doing, I think he would once again reiterate that it is time to stop circling the same ice. It's time to act. Uh, and we need to act in that with due regard for the kind of ethics, principles, effectiveness uh, of privacy and trust that Ian devoted an entire career uh, to ensuring was top of mind when we think about privacy, law, technology, and ethics. One programming note, this week's podcast will be the last of the summer of 2020. I'll be taking a short break, but be back in September with more episodes focused on law, technology, and digital policy. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.